Today's episode is brought to you by Angie. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs and projects done well. Let me tell you, there's the version of it where you try to do something at home, and then there's a version of it where you have someone help you, you watch them do it the right way, and you go, thank God I didn't try to do that myself. I have fully done things around the home that I think look good, and then a bang in the night, and I wake up to a shelf collapsing, a painting falling off the wall. Like it, I've, I've seen it all go south. I own a home, and I can tell you... I know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, you can Angie that and connect with skilled professionals to get the project done well. Right now, one of my wish lists is I want a bike for my condo in Milwaukee and I would love to rig it up on a pulley in the ceiling because I have one of those like lofted ceilings, but I'm so scared to try that on my own. Angie has 20 years of home experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app. Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Knockback, the retro and nostalgia podcast, is brought to you by, well, you. If you want to learn how to support our show, go to patreon.com slash laststandmedia. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined, as always, by my brother, Dagan Talbot Moriarty. Dagan, thank you for joining me today. How are you, my friend? I'm a genie in a bottle. I'm going to rub you the right way. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Hey, hey, real quick. Yeah. Speaking of, because this is the first time we're recording since, yeah. Paulie, oh, yeah. Paulie Walnuts died. R.I.P. R.I.P. So, so sad. What a loss. He was so, he was pretty young. He was in his 70s, I think. Yeah, you know what? It's interesting. He... When I when I would see him do interviews and panels and stuff after The Sopranos, so relatively recent, like in the last decade, right? He he seemed a little off, and I don't know. I can't speak to. It could have just been you know old age starting to set in or something. But there seemed to be something wrong with him. And then if he was in a panel with co with co stars and friends, it seemed like they were kind of kowtowing to him a little bit, you know, in in a way. So I'm not sure. If there was anything wrong, but I don't even, you know, it's funny. It's a, it's a sin. I don't even know how he passed. How did he go? I'm looking now. Yeah. Um, oh, this is, this is actually Paulie Galtieri's 
wiki page. Oh, Look nice. at the Tony Sirico. All right, here we go. Because um, I was like looking through it. It's longer than his real one. Is it like, really? It, that's the whole thing. Remember, I used to love um, that website, Something Awful, and they would have, they would compare real Wikipedia pages with Wikipedia pages for fake things. <laughs> So it would be like, you know, the Wikipedia page for a black hole, but then the Wikipedia page for like a black hole in some Marvel comic yeah, book. And it's like right. twice as long. <laughs> I used to love that. I don't know if they do that anymore. That just speaks to pop culture, doesn't it? But uh, let's see. Personal life. <sighs> he lived in an assisted living facility. Oh, OK. Three weeks before his 80th birthday. No cause was giving, but he had been diagnosed with dementia some years before his death. Oh, OK, so that that makes sense because you could kind of see it. You know, dementia, we're no strangers to that in our family. Our, our grandmother suffered from that. But yeah, th- there was definitely something off. The thing about Tony Sharico is, you know what? He was around for so long. I think he has some sort of criminal past, but then he's been acting since like the late 60s. Like he would do voiceover for animated characters and Bakshi films and really B-grade stuff. So to see him do a character later in his career that just took off and just transcended Anything else he had. To, I mean, that's how he was known, even though he did. Yeah, he had a laundry list of, of parts way before Sopranos ever was a glint in anyone's eye. So, yeah, it was sad. It's definitely sad to see him go. But the O, now the O will be an ongoing tribute. Right. Well, because right? I was going to say, like, other than Tony, maybe Dr. Malfi, is he the most iconic character from the show? I mean, I think so. In many yeah. ways, I do think so. Yeah. I mean, you have Silvio, too. And, and he's iconic. Sil was iconic because he's awesome, but he was iconic also because he's in the E Street Band. Yes. So people wanted to like always, you know. It's oh, yeah. Like that was always the big piece of tri- trivia. It's like, you know, he's in the E Street Band. I'm like, yeah, it's season four. I know. <laughs> double threat. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's it's sad to see him go. A lot of people wrote into me about that when he died. I'm like, I saw I mean, it could... and I'm glad that Dustin, our executive producer, he had watched Sopranos for the first time just months ago and started getting he really like loves it. Oh, my and God, so he got small. to kind of see it and, and enjoy it. Before. But the the shitty thing, of course, about about Sopranos fandom remains the very fact that we just can't get more uh, in terms of a sequel. Right. Not only because I think that they killed him at the end of the show, but because of the death of James Gandolfini. So R.I.P. there. But what's going on in your life, Dick? How's everything going? You know, it's so funny. Helene just brought something up to me right before we started the show, and I wanted to talk about it because it's hilarious, but I'm going to say it for the next episode. What I've been thinking about this week, and I talked to you about not feeling that great yesterday, I've just been going through this thing, dude, of just uncharacteristic laziness. It's pretty weird for me to feel this way. Not that I don't go through my lazy spells and I feel a little malaise or I feel like I just want to lay around and just relax. I certainly have that component to my personality, but just more so than ever. But here's the here's the twist. The laziness doesn't manifest itself in inaction. I don't I still work. I still have to carry on and do all my tasks, right? Food shop and take care of the yard and water the flower. Just all the things we all do, right? Take care of a house, take care of a help, take care of a family as part of a team over here, team Moriarty. But yeah, dude, I just feel this. It's an emotional, it's almost an emotional or mental laziness. And I don't even know what I want. Like I'm not fantasizing about laying on the beach in Mm. some tropical locale. I'm not fantasizing about just laying around on the couch and watching Mad Men 
over again. Like, I, I don't know what I want. I think really my best guess is, and I can keep you guys posted on how this evolves, but I really think this is part of my sort of beta midlife crisis that yeah. I've been going through yeah, in totally. the, over the last probably better part of a year or so. And I don't, you know, I have, I have so many questions. You're in, the po- you're in the pocket right now. I, I yeah. am. I definitely am. I mean, does now being 48, let me ask you this. Mm. Being 48 years old, does this mean I'm going to live till I'm 96? I know damn well I'm not going to live till I'm 96. You might. I but mean, I think we might. I think we're. I'm going to let you finish because I have something associated to say with that, but it's going to be a whole diatribe. So I'm I'll tell you, I, I have just it's a kind of a strange thing to talk about. I wanted to bring it up because I, mostly because I think it's funny, but also I have just as many questions as I have answers. I have no idea what this feeling is. It also kind of affects my creativity a little bit, which is probably the worst part for me. That's the that's it's hard to turn the other cheek when I feel like my creativity is suffering. And I can't even come up with a funny Twitter post or something like that. Now, my creativity comes in waves. It sort of peaks and valleys. It's always kind of been like that. Maybe it's like that for a lot of creative people. I guess we're all different. I don't know. But that's the hard. That's what I take personally is that, wow, this feels like I have all these ideas, but I'm hesitant to pull the trigger on doing a drawing. Like it's really it's it's kind of this tentative thing that I'm going through and I'm just trying to kind of ride it out but the more I think about it the more I'm like what is going on then I try to be introspective and it doesn't work and that gets aggravating so I think the best strategy is just let it let it kind of ride out let it play out as I'm aging and things are changing my my body's changing my psyche I guess is going through whatever it's going through (laughs) all right so what give me give me your uh give me brass tacks what's your input here well, yeah, I had I have two things to say. First of all, I feel a similar way. I don't think it's for the same reasons. I don't know what it is, but just I don't I don't know what the right word is. Like I feel li- not listless. Like I feel like I just kind of exist in a mm. way a lot. Mm. And I too find that I am cr- it's not lazy because I get my things done. It's very similar where if I just went into lazy mode, it would actually make me more anxious. So I can never go into that mode because then things are like things that are because I always tell myself, oh, no matter how fucked up you are in your head, at least your bills are paid. Yeah, stuff like that. So like, if you start if you start going down there, then I'm going to get into the, like the more existential area. But I feel in my own life recently, and I don't know if it's because of the meds I'm on or whatever the case might be, where I just kind of am bored. And I, there, no matter what I do, I don't really want to be doing it. You know, I think it's a lot of why like my GI Joes are not totally set up. It's I play video games, but I'm kind of just play them for an hour or two and then go walk away and do something else and walk around the house. And like, I just feel like I have no focus. And I'm wondering, mm-hmm. I didn't feel this way when I was a kid at all. And I feel like there's a lot of over diagnoses of everything. However, I also admit that my own depression and anxiety was greatly helped by medication. However, that might have also tweaked me in some way. And so I might be less my my in my innards might feel less strained, let's say, but I don't have the focus anymore that I used to have. And like the not only not, not the drive, because I get everything done. I don't know how to explain it. I guess I didn't really anticipate talking about this. It, it's just this idea of 
I'm almost waiting for time to pass. Like mm. I wake up and I'm like, I don't know. Uh, it, so you know, sometimes I have a lot of things to do, but sometimes I'm just like, I don't know if, if I have a day off. It reminds me a lot of when I worked at IGN in 2007 2008 when i first moved there and i didn't really have any friends i didn't really have anything to do where weekends i was like i wish it was like monday when it was like friday night so i can just get back to it and i feel like that now like i'm like i don't know what to do i don't know what to say i don't know where to be i don't have to be anywhere and i'm kind of just waiting for like time to pass mm, during the mm. day so i can like go to bed <laughs> you know it's like oh six o'clock's coming up you can work out Seven thirty's coming up you can eat you know 11 12 time for bed and it's like yes and i don't know what that's all about so yeah that is yeah see your ideas lead to some other counterpoints for me like is this where you and i inject i have this thought a lot like do you inject a whole new dimension into your life something that would be a little foreign to the way it is now like for instance like i'll start working on muscle cars or like a remote interest that you never pursued or i'll start golfing for an outlet or Another part of me knows damn well that like going out in the skate park three times a week early in the morning before the high school kids get there and just rolling around. Literally, I can't do a lot right now. I'd have to get my sea legs back under me and it would take a while anyway to even be remotely tricky on the skateboard. But I know things like that would help. So part of it is kind of my is kind of rests on my shoulders. But then the thing is, too, that dawns on me as you as you speak is like our personalities. You and I were responsible or mindful we have a guilty conscience, maybe. So if our laziness or whatever feelings of malaise that we're going through at the moment, right? If that manifested itself in us actually being lazy and just going and not doing the things that we needed to do or not doing them well or doing them half ass or something, what we would end up doing is we would worry about the things not getting done or not getting done well. So that's not in a way I, I won't speak for you, but I think this is the same for you. That's not even an option. No, you, no, no, it's not that's even an exactly option. Right. It's just going to make that's it exactly. worse. It's going to compound the situation. That's exactly right. Very well right. said. It's not an option. There are certain things that are not options. Yeah. In my life, like I know. It's like I actually said this recently to, to Micah. We were just talking about things. Or whatever, and I was like, the, I wouldn't be able to have an affair because I think it's wrong. But I wouldn't be able to have an affair because I would never also be able to live with it. It's wrong. Yes. I wouldn't do it. The but I, the, one of the major reasons why I think it's wrong is not only the 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 moral the morality or lack thereof of it and the lying, but and this is the way I put it to her is like my mind works where the second that when ha that happened, every interaction we have changes from that point on. And I'm lying about the intent of every interaction after that. And I know myself well enough to know that I can never even get within a light year of that. Right. And so you have nothing to worry about. Seriously. Right? <laughs> Because it would have to break down so much that the relationship would barely not even exist anymore for me. To Absolutely, get to that point. Yeah. dude. Yeah. And so I Whatever totally pleasure that, that brought, right? It would so out be outweighed by the guilt, the constant wonder, pressure, you're, you're, worrying. You ever wonder about that? I mean, people. Oh, I've known people that have cheated on their significant others, and I'm not proud to know them. Oh, I'm proud. Right. I'm there. So come on, we're my friends. But and I've never really had the balls to ask. And you obviously hear in, in society, people are fucking cheating on everyone all the time. It's right? Like, how? How? How do you do that? It's a joke. It's got to be the biggest juggling act to, you know, like work of deception. I don't You know what? Here's something I think about. A lot. This, is like, where, this is where my mind goes to. This is how crazy it gets. We know people in our lives right now, be it friends, neighbors, family members, remote family members, people we don't see a lot, whatever, that are cheating and we don't know it. Get it. You got it. There you go. That's a, such a weird thought, isn't it? Definitely. 
Such a and strange I've been cheated thing. on by a couple women. And at least in my case, you don't know. <laughs> you really don't. You don't. But I'm also not very smart. The other thing that I wanted to bring up um, is. <laughs> what did, wait, what did I write down here? I don't. Uh, oh, I guess I, I can't remember what I wanted to say. Otherwise, I guess that was it. Well, I, I wrote promise down, I wrote a, more, down some, a less uh, a more humorous and much more self-deprecating topic next time. This oh, is no, just what I'm going through. I have to be honest with you guys. This is just I'm going through this strange thing. Kyle apparently is, too, which is and maybe it's the way of the world, man. Maybe it's not just us. You know, maybe this is the way people are being afflicted. I'm not just saying, you know, the um, what we've been going through over the last couple of years with this virus and all this kind of thing. But just I don't know, just the way of the world right now. Inflation. I feel, well, yeah. Oh, oh yeah, dude. I mean, every, right. It just makes me more of a populist like. We we both do well for ourselves. Inflation doesn't. I mean, it sucks for us, but it doesn't hurt us. It yeah, hurts lucky. a lot of people out there. It destroys Absolutely. them, you know. So, um, stay steady out there, of course. But yeah, I think about. Um, you know what? I, I I can read my notes now. What I, what I wanted to say was, I wonder what the tipping point would be for me. And one of the things that I think about, as dark as it, as it is, and you don't want to tempt fate or whatever, is that I think that, and I've said this in the past, is that I just think I dodged death quite a bit not for me but for people in my life and i feel like that's the kind of stuff that can start delivering body blows to you you know where you start functioning in different realities or have to be compartmentalizing things and and all of that i think for as shitty as my life has been sometimes like i i kid around although i i do mean it like my childhood was stolen from me at age seven straight up and i mean that but for all of the things that have happened to me could have been way worse and things turned out great so I try not to like focus too much on the negative, but we'll continue to to track carefully your mid midlife crisis. Yeah, I think it's all about having things to look forward to, right? You got to kind of build everything on hope, a foundation of hope, and just having those little could be a little thing. Like I love the idea that you guys are dabbling with the uh, the the concept of doing a D and D game every week or every two weeks or every month. Like th- it could be something as simple as that, like something to look forward to, something with friends you could unwind, have a drink, have a laugh, that type of thing. So it might just be, and I don't really get to see friends. That could be a whole dimension missing from my yeah, life. I, have too. No fr- I mean, I really don't have any friends. I mean, that's, that's the truth. Like I, I have a few people that I've been long time friends with like Ramon and Mike. Yeah. And I have my sit, my, my siblings and I have uh, Micah, of course, but I don't really have any friends. Those mainstays. I, I think yeah. that's, I think that's men, our ages. I think that's typical. I think we go through that as we go through life, you know, cultivate these adult responsibilities and time goes quick and we're busy. So, yeah, that might be something for me and you to be mindful of. Like, you know, just get that dimension of going out to the uh, the pub and having a drink every week with a friend and catching up. Go see a movie. Go do a go do chip and putt. You don't have to do 18 holes of golf at the country club. You know what I mean? Go do mini go to golf, Chippendales. Whatever. Go do Chippendales. Yeah. Look, whatever floats your boat. Yeah. Get out there. <laughs> Today's episode is brought to you by Angie. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs and projects done well. Let me tell you, there's the version of it where you try to do something at home, and then there's a version of it where you have someone help you, you watch them do it the right way, and you go, thank God I didn't try to do that myself. I have fully done things around the home that I think look good, and then a bang in the night, and I wake up to a shelf collapsing, a painting falling off the wall. Like it, I've, I've seen it all go south. I own a home, and I can tell you... 
I know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, you can Angie that and connect with skilled professionals to get the project done well. Right now, one of my wish lists is I want a bike for my condo in Milwaukee and I would love to rig it up on a pulley in the ceiling because I have one of those like lofted ceilings, but I'm so scared to try that on my own. Angie has 20 years of home experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app. Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right. Dave, the topic today, another <laughs> fan-voted topic, Uncharted 3, uh, Drake's Deception, uh, which goodness. came to... PlayStation 3, the very famous date, 11-1-11. So November 1st, 2011, of course we remember. Comes from Naughty Dog. And what's interesting about this game is that it's uh, the final game that Amy Hennig was there for. And and that had put out. So, like She worked a little bit on Battlefield Hardline, I think. but So it's been a long time. And the game came to PlayStation 3. It was ported to PlayStation 4 by Bluepoint in 2004. So you can play it there as well. I did what I did with the other two games, which is I just watched a playthrough. I've played Uncharted 3 a million times. I just have to be, I have to have some economy with my time. I can't just be playing every game that I've already played three times. So that's hard. It was cool. It was cool to go into. It was cool to kind of watch it like a movie, which I did. I watched like a six hour full playthrough of it. And uh, I'm very curious to, to start off. We haven't played Uncharted 4 yet. I've often said that Uncharted 4 is a game that I rushed through and did not give a fair shake to. So I don't mm. even I don't even want to judge. You can't judge it. I don't want to judge it because I don't feel like it's fair. And so we have the trilogy on PS3 established from Naughty Dog. Uncharted 1, 2, and 3 from 2007, 2009, 2011. I ask you, what do you think of Uncharted 3 Drake's Deception? And do you think it's the best one so far? Or where would you slot it? Yeah, you know, first of all, it feels great for this old school gamer being three games deep now into this classic franchise. I have to say, pat myself on the shoulders. It's a good feeling. And dude, I had such an awesome time with the game. I'm sure that's not a huge surprise to you guys. Frankly, I was sorry to see it come to an end. And, um, you know, I thought I was thinking about this game in comparison to the, my first two experiences and I loved them all. And if I had to go pound for pound and pick one, I would probably edge out two over my experience with three by just a slight margin just in terms of wows and smile and talk out loud to myself moments of just awe but i have to say and just thinking about my experience with uncharted as a whole and how much i love it and how much i love the characters and everything so far i'm not really necessarily looking for something different or better with each iteration because i just fell in love with the franchise by the end of two i'm just looking for fun 
and I'm looking for a return to these amazing characters that I've grown to love, especially Nate and Sully. And of course, they're going to have different adventures, different baddies to deal with in each thing, different treasures to go after, different scenarios. Maybe we learn more about the characters as we did in three, but I'm not necessarily looking for improvements because I already love it so much. So in all fairness, I realized that by the time I was, you know, a quarter of the way through Uncharted 3, that I just really enjoy this franchise. And I think they do a great job with evolving it while still stitching through those consistencies that we're looking for. And I just had an awesome time, dude. I really, really had fun. To me, it seemed like a nice mashup of Indiana Jones and Guy Ritchie. You know, I love British gangster films, especially Guy Ritchie, but British gangster films going all the way back to the 60s. Of course, it seemed like that a little more in the beginning, like it was going to be like that. And then it kind of goes off in a different direction. But I just, I loved it. I loved it for everything it brought that I was expecting it to bring and that I was hoping it would bring. And I love it for the little differences and the little evolutions. I think, you know, I have very little bad to say about it, but I'm going to go on for the next two hours gushing if that, if that's fair. That's totally fair. Uh, I've long been a proponent of Uncharted 3 being the best Uncharted. Mm. And it's not a popular opinion. And a lot of people think that I like to be contrarian and I really don't. I just make the call that I feel like is the right one to be made. And when and people that have listened to me for a long time know that I've said this before, so I'm sorry for the redundancy, but it's important <laughs> to place this here because it comes from the source that Naughty Dog, them, you know, people at Naughty Dog, when I interviewed 20 something people there for the history of Naughty Dog at IGN, the common theme from Amy all the way down was if we put Uncharted 3 out before Uncharted 2, everyone would love it more. In other words, what they're saying is, is that mm. Uncharted 2 was such a revolution from Uncharted 1, because there's no doubt that the jump from 1 to 2 is much greater than the jump from 2 to 3, because they really unleashed the power of the PS3 with the second game. And mm. this, there's, this is much more refined. I mean, there's even different models in this game and stuff. So and they made it in two years. It's an almost impossible to imagine making games that quick. And so I think that there's some sort of relevance to that, that, that th they think that Uncharted 2 is just so important to Uncharted, so important to PlayStation and the studio that they could never possibly follow it up with anything anyone would give a, a fair shake to and that they would have felt the same way about Uncharted 3 if it had come out second and then they would have treated 2 the same way if it come out as 3. That's basically how they feel and they were very open about that. I personally think that, yes, it's very attractive for multiple reasons to me. The British gangster angle, totally interesting. The connection to and I think this is vital. The connection to childhood. Is, oh, yes. Now, this was a huge secret. This was something that didn't leak. We didn't see it. I didn't even know about it. No one knew about it until they started playing that in the second chapter, you see Nate as a child and play as him as a teenager. And we see how he meets Sully. This is an essential story. I mean, this is an essential part of the story and not to spoil too much, but what, what, while I thought it was fine, what frustrated me about the Uncharted film was that they tried to redo that story. And I'm like, that's oh, not, you know, I it's like, no, 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 no. You know, it, it's cool. I didn't mind the movie. I liked it a lot more than I thought I would, but trying to show me how Nate and Sully meet, we already know how Nate and Sully meet. That's not, uh, we, you, we already know. This is how they meet. They met at a museum in Columbia. Right. And so that's really cool. The connection from Marlowe to Sully and then kind of coming back in the beginning. That's really relevant to me. And I think the, the, the lack of supernaturalism, I think, is really cool. And they also play around with a lot of things too. Play, they play around with killing, 
you know, you obviously in the beginning, you know, something's up, but they kill around straight up with playing Sully. And that's one of the things I want to talk to you about. They played around with that in the first game, too. But so there's a lot for me to like here. And I think that there's something to be said about how do you follow Uncharted 2 up? How do you follow that train sequence up? How do you follow the, the huge statue that you're put, pu- pushing in all sorts of different directions? And, and the answer is, is that they do it pretty ably. This game's directed by Justin Richmond. It's not directed by Amy Hennig. So it's got a little bit of a different feel. And I would argue a more cinematic feel because she's not involved in it. Mm-hmm. and can focus more on the um, on the creative aspects. And so there's a lot there that I, I so I think you're I think you're right on like there are criticisms to be leveled against this game. I think there's some strangeness. I think there's a lot of convenient things that happen. And I think that there are at least two vignette style asides in the game that almost get you from point A to point B. You don't really understand how this happens, specifically the boat sequence with, with Ramses. And then when you meet the, the riders, yes, this is weird. And I actually love the boat sequence. So, but it, so I just wanted to lay all that out that I think that Uncharted 3 is a masterpiece. It's I actually remember it um, in 2011. Greg Miller reviewed it. And when we would give games a 10, which I only gave one game a 10. So I, I never really had to deal with this too much was that you had a kind of like there, everyone had to kind of sign off on it, like the bosses, because it's like a pretty big thing to give a 10. Not so much Huge. anymore. They seem to give them away much more. But I think there was something like 13 10s when I left IGN. Wow. And. And uh, he gave this game a 10. And I remember being in the meeting and kind of vouching for it. I'm like, this is a really special game. I don't know. There, I don't see what's wrong with it. Now, what was surprising to me going through everything that people wrote into us on, on Patreon. Of course, you can write into us about the show and get read on the show. Patreon.com slash last media early ad free access as well. A lot of people are kind of a little more critical. I, and oh, that's good to go. All right. Let's yeah, do this. So we, so we have that to, to work off of. So let me see here. You know what? I want to start at the very. Let's start at the very beginning. What do you think of that awesome bar sequence? I, I just really dig it. Cool setup with the ring and the money, and them getting shot in the back, and Cutter being a turncoat. I don't know if you know this, but one of the reasons why this is a this this section of the game is actually notorious in games history is because hidden in this section is a Last of Us teaser that they forgot to take out of the game. Oh, and no. there's a whole story. So the teaser for people that want to go look is that on the bar is a newspaper and the newspaper says like outbreak or something. And it has like a picture of like a, a clicker on it and like all sorts of things on it. Oh, shit. the story behind that is someone put that in as like a joke because as people know, Naughty Dog split into two teams at this point. One team was working on the last of us. One team was working on Uncharted, Uncharted three. And there's some crossover, but that was like their attempt to kind of do two games at once. And they ended up collapsing that and not doing that anymore after that. But they kind of put it in there. I think one artist or one asset producer or whatever as a joke, like, oh, like, here's a joke from our team to your team or whatever. And then it just stayed there. Build after build after build after build through alpha, through beta to the final gold build of the game and then a launch. And no one noticed it. And when they noticed it, apparently this is a great story because when they noticed it, they were so horrified because at that point, still people have to remember we're. I don't know, a year away from learning about The Last of Us at this point, I think. And so something like that, maybe not quite a year. I think we actually learned about it to a little bit after that, but we don't really know much. But they were afraid of taking it out because they knew that like eagle eyed people will be like, what what did you take? Why did you take out the newspaper? And then they'll go find the newspaper in the previous versions on the disc version and figure out that it's some, it's teasing something. So they just it was this thing in, in the open that no one knew about and it, it never teased the game and no one ever figured it out. 
that's incredible i think is really funny yeah (laughs) that's an awesome little insight i love Mm -hmm. that i love hearing the 2011 touch coming to this game 11 years later so this is this is all awesome yeah so it's uh, so that i love that story but i love that sequence because it's a really clever tutorial for for combat it's funny it reintroduces the characters what's so great about being in the third game i mean think about return of the jedi or something being in the third game is you don't have to introduce anyone you introduce the villains jabba the hut right or marlo right but otherwise you're kind of familiar with everyone you have this kind of guy cutter you don't really know maybe he's more of a lando type character you're not really super familiar with him but i like how they don't have to waste time with that and you just kind of get into it you know them you know their relationship you know they're up to something so they can just roll right into it it feels so good and i do agree the first 20 minutes before you go to columbia is a total guy Ritchie movie i mean it's awesome so what, what did you think of that opening sequence the brawl in the bar and and meeting marlo and talbot it's a it's such a fun beginning and it's a little unexpected if you played played the first two uncharted because you're not used to seeing these characters necessarily in a contemporary urban setting so automatically it's cool and of course as long as you as soon as you find out it's london you're automatically thinking gangster movie guy Ritchie, long good friday get carter sexy beast gangster number one like i'm all these things are channeling through and i'm just getting so excited and then you find out that the the fight is awesome i mean that is one awesome thing that naughty dog does with these games is they build in these tutorials that just feel like fun they just feel like a fluid part of the game so you find out that continues and you find out your melee combat, what you could do that's familiar, what you could do that's a little new evolution, the new stuff you could pull off. And it's very cinematic. You know, it feels like an Indiana Jones movie. You feel outnumbered. There's wise cracking. The acting and the motion capture is so good. The emoting. It feels very natural. It feels very funny and it takes a very fun tone. You know, you think of things like... The Lethal Weapon movies, you know, it just has that fun, engaging tone, maybe cross it with a little Quentin Tarantino. And you find out in the Charlie Cutter character that your duo is becoming a trio. And I love what you said about the Lando Calrissian comparison, Kyle, because you are kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop with this guy. Is this guy going to betray them? Is it going to be a triple cross? The whole thing and the whole sort of exchange at the bar with the counterfeit money the sale of the ring going awry, the brawl. And then that moment where the four of them, the three plus Chloe are walking to the garage and you got this real reservoir dogs moment of the four of them walking from the back, having the conversation just as things are getting started. And it really sets the tone of excitement. And while also carrying off that cinematic approach that feels like you're playing a movie, which is something I guess I spent 14 the better part of 14 hours on the game the whole game feels like that feels like you're playing a movie and it feels just interactive enough and of course I have some critiques of how they maybe they could have done it better and they might have been a little hamstrung by the technology of the time too but I just you know pound for pound right from the beginning moments of the of the of the say I was going to say film of the game it just feels like an amazing experience and it's one of those things too Kyle where I just had the thought of you know we're we're older we're busy in life we have a thousand things to do and you don't want to feel like you're wasting your time on a video game and we've I've I don't think I've had that experience on knockback yet so we've been very lucky with what we've chosen but the 
Uncharted series so far for me just feels like a great use of time. Like I'm so glad I spent that those five nights with the game. You know, you come away really feeling grateful for the experience. And, you know, it's just so much fun, dude. And, you know, I have to say, I'm really sad. Now, I never played, I haven't played four yet. We're going in order. We will play it eventually. I haven't played any of the satellite games, so the little in-between adventures. But I'm almost sort of, I don't know. I don't really know where it could even possibly go from here. You know, it's been that good of a ride so far. And I don't think I've had that experience with any franchise yet where I'm like, wow, where can they possibly go from here? That still feels like Uncharted, but feels like something new. So they they got me. They got me hook, line and sinker. <laughs> yeah, I, I totally understand what you're saying. I mean, there are there is almost nothing like Uncharted still to this day. It's hard to replicate. I often say, you know, obviously Uncharted inspired by Tomb Raider, Tomb Raider then inspired by Uncharted. And so you have kind of that interplay. But it's Uncharted is one of those games that seems to have never really been replicated because it's so true to its origins as an Indiana Jones kind of thing and all this and Tomb Raider that it would be hard. It's kind of like Cuphead. We say about Cuphead, it would be hard to copy it because how could you without just copying it to the point where it's it's gratuitous and ridiculous? Yeah. And I think they, they play that uh, very well. And there's just something about these very becoming characters that we can relate to when we like and we root for. I also think that Uncharted does a really nice job of letting good things happen to characters as well, especially in the ending, which we'll talk about. So it's like very satisfying. It's not trying to hurt you or, mm. or fuck up your expectations. They, they give you something. They, they lean into the pulpiness. They lean into the until, like you said, the Indiana Jonesness of it. And actually, since you brought it up, Jeremy Tan wrote in and said, Greetings, brothers Moriarty. Hope you're both doing swell. Yo. After playing through the series and getting the Platinum Trophy a couple of years back, I came to prefer Uncharted 3 over 2 as my favorite game in the series. Uncharted 3 felt like a fitting at the time ending for Nathan Drake's adventures as he rides into the sunset with Sully and Elena. As a big indie fan, I couldn't help but notice the inspirations drawn from The Last Crusade throughout this adventure. In particular, the focus on the father-son-like relationship between Nate and Sully. The game intentionally draws a lot of parallels with The Last Crusade, from the flashback sequence involving young Nate at the beginning, stowing away on a jet instead of a Zeppelin, to an epic late-story horseback riding sequence in a canyon to rescue their respective father figure from a vehicle convoy. My question is, were these inspirations apparent to you on your initial playthroughs? If so, how did how did noticing these pretty direct nods to The Last Crusade affect your experiences with this masterpiece of a game? I must admit, I'm usually not very tuned in to shit like this, but I did notice that. Mm. And um, not all of what you said, but I noticed a lot of it, especially it really came to f the Last Crusade stuff really came to fruition with me with the horses and the convoy. I was like, this is just the end of The Last Crusade. I mean, it's, and you can see that. And that's cool because they're open about Indiana Jones being a major. I mean, it's obvious a major inspiration for for it. But if Indy, they add a dynamic to it, though, because it's it's Indy by himself. He has like what's that guy, Belloc or whatever. Yeah. Um, but otherwise, he is with the, the different girl in each film. But in this, they kind of they give him a father figure that's there in the third indie film and a a consistent girl figure that is only briefly challenged in the second one so i'm curious um did you notice these uh, indiana jones odes as well and and how do you feel about all the different inspirations coming to bear because i must admit that there's way more than just uncharted i think in these films and, and i've given amy hennig a lot of credit before as being a deep study so mm. who even knows where where a lot of the shit actually comes from but oh so it all comes from somewhere so did you notice those specific angles 
Absolutely. And I, you know, also, before I forget to say, I love the tie-ins with T. Lawrence and Lawrence Ooh. of Arabia as well. Ooh. I mean, that was huge. And it, it, it seems like a logical progression for them to bring the adventure there and use that as a big part of the inspiration. But I love that, too. I mean, I you definitely see the indie and the Dr. Jones Sr. comparison here. What I loved about it is that I fell in love with Nathan Drake and Sully, especially these two characters. Not only them as individuals, but them as a tandem, them as a team, as a protege and a mentor. So I love that they played it up, gave us a little more of that, that love and affection and sort of that how they kind of drive each other and how they kind of build each other as characters and as people but also to see like the fact of like them really going to bat for each other. Like there's a moment in this where Charlie betrays them and Sully's ready to blow his head off because he's, he could possibly hurt Nathan, who is his, like his son, his surrogate son. And to see that actually what we thought their relationship was probably like to actually see that play out was so cool. I love those moments. And so it's not just about the gameplay. It's about that you're really seriously invested in these characters, but also to see the origins. By the way, I'm wearing the young Nathan Drake shirt. I don't know nice. if you guys noticed. Very nice. Um, and to see where how that relationship started, where it sort of kicked off from, how it kicked off, and to know a little bit outside of that, even hearing about, even though it's a little bit, we could have probably got a little more. Maybe we do later. I don't know. To hear about young Nate in the orphanage and adopting the the name from Francis Drake. And a little, we find out a little more. So it was really kind of special to see that. My biggest call out, oddly, to Indiana Jones as a franchise in general, I always think this, but especially in this game, Colin, number three, every time you go toe-to-toe melee combat with like a big bad, I always think of Indy's battle with the giant German dude on the tarmac. Yeah. Right? That totally. the guy that ends up in the, you the know, propeller. getting grinded up by the propeller. Right. <laughs> getting minced up. Flambe. What, what do you call it? Uh, when you do the blender operation. What is that one? I don't know. Whatever that one is. But uh, I always think of that moment. And every time, because you have a couple, you come face to face with a couple of heavies in this one. And I always go back to that moment. And I'm sure that's what they're thinking of, even if it's like, you know, in the back of their minds. But I love it. I, I love all the ties to Indy. And I, I just love that they carried out that relationship between Sully and Nate and really kind of built on that. Because I love the I love these two characters. I, I'm ride or die for these games just for these two, if nothing else. So seriously, it's probably two of my favorite video game characters ever. Like, I find them really lovable and their relationship is so appealing to me. Well, I think that what what's impressive about games like this and what I think these games do better than almost any other and are certainly replicated for it is just the characterization and interchange between characters and all the rest happening during quiet moments. They just they don't waste any time doing something. They're always talking back and forth to each other. You learn it's like, oh, you know, it's just like stupid things that you would never you would never you know, say, what are they even talking about? And he's like, you know, you know, remember Peru? Oh, you're going to bring up Peru and all this. I just like how they they're always filling them the time and giving it this feeling that they really do know each other. That they really do love each other, that there's all of this stuff that we don't know about. Now, Golden Abyss, the Vita game is a prequel to these games, but a sequel to the first one, I want to say. OK, and then the fourth one takes place after everything. So that, that's all you're missing at this point. 
Okay. And and I would say some people Golden Abyss is a Sony Ben game. I, it counts, but I don't think that you're missing too much. Oh, it's not Naughty so, Dog. No, no, no. It was made by Ben and okay. um, for the Vita. So with their with their great you know blessings or whatever. Sure, sure. Who knows? If they even had a choice, but I think I just think that that father son relationship is at the center of what makes this so charming that they do so much to develop the characters that there's just so much direction and effort that goes into the game, a game like this, that it's impressive that the game is built from stem to stern. So you can go through it and do everything. Just that alone in two years is insane, but filling it all with that's insane. Life is even insaner. And yeah, I don't know how they did it. I I really don't insane. You know, two years for one, two, and three, you know, and then four got stuck in development hell a little bit just because Amy Hennig left and they had to re- kind of restart. But yeah, I didn't even know she didn't have anything to do with that one. Wow. Well, she did on four was being she announced for herself. OK, at, so at she like started. Event. OK. And um, but when she, she was dismissed or whatever or left when no one really knows the nature of it still, yeah. they took everything she did and kind of reworked it like all of the parts of the game were in her game. They're just kind of remixed and they wrote gotcha. the story around it and all that because okay. they had already built everything, you know, the gray boxes and all that. So it's uh, it's interesting to to think about Uncharted 3 2011, the moment November 2011, playing it through and and um, being like, yeah, this this does feel like there's not much left to say, but they, they do have more to say. But since it, it, it's something I wanted to talk about later, but since we're talking about them now, I think we should just bring it up now. I am curious about what you thought of the incl- the in- the inclination of Sully being killed at the end. Mm. Tom Brown wrote in and said, hey, guys, I really enjoyed Uncharted 3 when it came out. I thought the story was amazing, albeit one section, the Sully death section. I didn't think it was well placed or executed. And as we know, it was a fake out as deaths usually this far into a trilogy shocked the audience. Um, who would the Moriarty brothers have up on the chopping block in an Uncharted series? Personally, I always thought it could have been done with a bit more stakes and consequences. Mm. Sully's the only one that really, I think, could die amongst the, the main characters with it being kind of within the vein of of its action origins and its pulpy origins, preferably maybe no one dying even. But I remember seeing that and being like, holy shit, they actually killed him and playing it when, when right before it came out. And I wasn't happy about it. And then when he comes back, it's like, oh, thank God. But then I remember talking to them, talking to Amy and others, and they deny this, and I, I believe them. But I was like, "Did you guys bring him back because you had complaints or something?" Or it feels very, it felt very much like Duke is in a coma from from GI Joe, you know, <laughs> yes, instead of Duke very is dead. Much so. And they say no, and in watching it and kind of knowing more about games now and stuff, the ending is structured around Sully and all that. I, I believe them, but did you believe it? When when it happened, I mean, because they've they've pulled this move in the past, but it looked pretty convincing this time. Yeah, it did. I mean, I was dubious because you don't really know. I mean, first you think like you are at this point in the story, you already are very familiar with the fact that you're dealing with this hallucinogenic agent and that things aren't always what they seem. Draco already had his first hallucination adventure. You know, this is a big part of the plot later on. So. But you're also thinking, all right, it's Uncharted. It's a famous franchise. It's critically acclaimed. Maybe it's a baller move, you know, and I have to say I would I I would be heartbroken. I would be wrecked and I could I tie this to my current time in my life because I just finished Stranger Things and no spoilers, but there's some you get gutted at the end of the latest Stranger Things. They're not. And it reminds me of going back to Harry Potter where they're not afraid to kill characters 
you know, um, and that was kind of my first modern tie to something like that, where a writer will go in and kill like a Cedric Diggory. It's like and that dude did not deserve to die. So that you're always I'm always calling up pop culture touch tones like that to be like, all right, th- is this really happening? But I love playing through that moment with Nate's rage also vis-a-vis his hallucinations, like f- fighting the um, the ghost rider flaming head soldiers, knowing that's part of his trip. That's part of this trip that he's going on, this, this hallucination, these mind games. I was very relieved to find out that it wasn't the case that Sully was dead. It also happens very quick. So it does seem like a little shoehorned into the last quarter of the game. Because remember, prior to that, around the middle point of the game, Sully's missing for a large chunk. I mean, you go on this wild goose chase to rescue him from Ramses in that first in the ship slash wharf into Ramsey's boat, his yacht, his ship, whatever it is. And it turns out that he never even had him in the first place. And then so there Sully's missing for a while. So then for him to turn up and then go miss and then get killed, it kind of it seemed off. It didn't seem believable. It seems like they could have pulled a better rabbit out of their hat for that moment. But I guess they wanted to do something that elicited Nate's pain and his rage and, you know, him flying off the deep end, which, you know, I think that could have been went really badly if that really did happen. And then also, again, with Talbot sort of seemingly kicking Sully to the curb again, right in that last encounter where he kicks, he kind of knocks Sully out and then kicks him into the drink, you know? So that is, so it was interesting the way it played out again. I think for instance, Kyle, I wouldn't have minded this, this game ping ponging back from contemporary modern times to playing more as young 15 year old Nate. I think that would have been really, really fun. I don't know if you do a thing where, it would have felt really dynamic with modern Nate and the weaponry and then going to kid Nate maybe as a slingshot and he throws rocks, you know, whatever it is, something that I feel like they could have capitalized on more, but for what they decided to go with, I think they did a good job. Yeah. What did you think about? Um, I mean, what are your grander thoughts about Nate's origins and him meeting Sully and, and all of that? Did it feel organic and natural to you? See, I really like the idea of, them kind of going after a similar treasure and them kind of just encountering each other at the at the museum and he he lifts his wallet and pickpockets him and kind of gets you know brings him to the bar and gets him food and tries to introduce himself and i like it i mean i i think it's a little weird but i when you really think about it but i i like because he like it's, it's very fast where it's like yeah kid like i want to show you a thing or two or whatever and it's like okay cool but you had to meet somehow and there's way more texture to it 20 years hence. I mean, there, there's there's so much time that had passed since then. But what did you think overall? I know you said you wanted to go back, but did, were you satisfied with that whole sequence? I mean, what, what did you think of seeing young Nate? Was that a surprise to you? It definitely was. Yeah, I had no idea they were going to do that. I think it was super fun. I love when we meet him. He's already kind of a young thief in training or, you know, he's got that whole historical bent. He's already kind of like got an obsession so that's not something that's something compounded by meeting a, a kindred spirit that's 25 years older. And I just love their relationship from the beginning. You know, you could see that this is a young orphan. He's kind of a hard case. He's kind of a hard ass. At first, he really wants nothing to do with Sully, despite Sully's prodding. And I love, Su- you know, I don't want to get Victor Sullivan's personality 
washed out in this either. Like his personality as somebody who is, you know, somebody who's made a mistakes. He's obviously a scoundrel, but he's still kind of a caring, nurturing individual underneath all that. And of course, very charismatic. And you could see how in Sully's personality, those traits are handed down to adult Nate. Like you could see like he's a proper protege to Sully. And I think it's a really fun way to introduce the villain, too. I think Marlowe is ultimately a, a little bit of a diluted villain. But I like the way she's tied into the origins, that she's an employer or a benefactor or a client of Sully's at that time. Maybe, maybe or maybe not. There's some kind of romantic entanglement. I'm not really sure about that. But the fact that I don't think they really capitalized on the opportunity of having a fleshed out villain with her, but at least she's tied into the origins and she's there. What's cool is she's there from when Sully and Nate meet. So she's an important part of this story, too, because she goes back just as deep as they're they're becoming a duo. So that was kind of a neat thing, if, if for nothing else. And again, just kind of the the way she's kind of part of this shadowy British organization that's somehow tied into Sir Francis Drake. And it seems a little Masonic. Maybe there's some kind of occult supernatural stuff tied in with it, which is interesting. Again, they didn't really explore that too deeply. They could have got a little scarier with that, but I like the way they kind of, they kind of brought it all together. It's a lot of fun. And I love playing as young Nate, where you have to run from Marlowe's agents on the rooftops. I, I could have definitely gone for more of that where it could have been a little bit more of a dynamic, you know, maybe even as ter in terms of gameplay, the jumping, the running, the agility could have been a little different. It could have felt a little different. So it could have been kind of two games in one. And to have that ping pong back and forth could have been great. Now, maybe we get to see young Drake again. I'm not sure. But um, I would have loved to have more of that as well. I think that would have been fun. Totally. I can see that. Yeah, this bounce back and forth thing. But I dig that they did it. They did it early. They got it out of the way. And they, they kept it. I'm sure they're so thrilled they kept it secret. That didn't oh, they leak. did? Yeah, that didn't leak, which is cool. That's really them, cool. I'm sure that you get to play as him. I want to talk to you. We've talked about Marl a little bit. One of the things that I like about Uncharted, specifically two and three, is how feminine they are. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of cool female characters in these games. It starts in two with the dynamic between Elena and Chloe, but then it continues in three with Chloe and Elena both coming back in their own way, plus Marlo being the big baddie. No, I dig that. I don't think it's relevant one way or the other, but I happen to think that the two female characters in these games, the two female protagonist type characters and Elena and Chloe are both very endearing. And uh, I was curious if you expected to see them both back in, in or not, because Cutter is a new introduction to us. And you almost expect that that's kind of like our guy, this which which I wouldn't have really minded because our, our companion is often a woman or Sully. So it would be like, OK, there's some dude with us now. We've had other guys with us in the past here and there, but I'm um, like Flynn. But I'm wondering what you think of uh, uh, Chloe and Elena. And, and did you expect to see them pop up? Were you pleased? I especially like I think the game it's well more than halfway through the game before we see Elena at all. Yeah. So you can imagine a situation where they're where they're not together. And then there's a whole thing with their marriage and all of this. So what do you think of all that? It was cool to see them both back. I was waiting for Elena to show up and I thought 
it got like you said it got pretty far into the game so i thought there was a chance that we weren't even going to see her in this adventure which i thought was interesting especially when you consider the fact that chloe is in it from almost the beginning they bring her back so i thought that was an interesting choice i was waiting i found myself waiting chapter after chapter for elena to show up and of course she does show up in yemen and i was happy to see her show up and you always think how that's gonna you know how is this gonna pivot the story now how is this going to play out now that she's involved again the chloe character i feel like she's underused a little bit i like the you know when you sort of put it together that you have four adventurers our two heroes and then this new guy and charlie and then chloe to have this foursome on the first half of the adventure so they could pair off to go to france to go to syria i understand why they did it this way but I think Chloe gets a little underused. And then she's she and Charlie. I mean, Charlie gets a broken leg. She's nurturing him. They're out of the equation because of his injury. And I thought Charlie was going to die. So I was really relieved that they let Cutter live. But they kind of just dropped them from the entire thing. Whatever it is, 50% into the game, which I thought was an interesting choice. And I think Chloe is ultimately underused. I think I kind of felt that way about her and two as well. But again... You kind of got to let your you got to let the cream rise to the top. So if this story is going to be about Nate and Sully and then the estranged marriage with Nate and Elena and all that kind of stuff, I guess you got to kind of you can't clutter it, the, the, the workings too much. But I was pleased. I mean, I was really pleased to see that. It feels like a proper full adventure to have that many characters. That's not just Nate and Sully. You have Chloe and Charlie doing their thing as well. They're all together, all four of them are together for a little while. So it feels like it's po- the the adventure is populated with a with uh, enough players to keep it interesting, which I think they do like a like a good movie. It's it just plays out the same way in this game form. Yeah, the only post Uncharted four content that there is is the Lost Legacy, which is a which is a kind of a standalone spinoff of Uncharted four that I think stars. Chloe and Nadine, and I don't think you even know Nadine yet. So okay, so we see a little bit more of her. Oh, that's later. good to know. That's good yeah. to know. Which is good. All right. So I want to ask you a little bit about the history of of the the game. We had brought it up a little bit earlier, but I think it's relevant to dive deeper into it. One of the coolest things about this to me as a lover of history, and certainly Indiana Jones and the things that inspired it, is just this kind of the, what's it's fun, right? Like you can go back. And say whatever the fuck you want. That's what's so cool about this stuff. It takes a lot of cleverness to be able to tie Walter Raleigh and Nathan Drake into this thing in Indonesia and Borneo and all. You know, and you have to kind of line up the maps and the numbers, make sure it all makes sense in a very basic way. But it is true that Drake was just out in the water for years at a time. Like, who the fuck knows what he was really doing in quotes? And it's fun to go back and and think about that stuff. Do you like mining history for stories like this? Of course, it became famous I think Indiana Jones made it famous, but I think the Da Vinci Code really brought it to the to a head. Sure. With this idea of going back and having this very deep linear history of all these things that happened for reasons and are tied together. Yes. You know, the Assassin's Creed games do that, too. So what do you think of um, of the depths of history here? The idea of of Drake kind of it's, it's, it's cool. Drake finding this thing to frame it. They're pursuing this obsessively. They find what one of the things they're looking for and they find evidence that Drake was trying to that Drake himself, um, Francis Drake, was like, I don't want anything more to do with this and try and hides it from everybody. So it's like this catastrophic secret. 
that he didn't want to get out. I think it's pretty neat. Um, what do so you think about cool. their their mining of history? I think it's so fun. I think it's a really fun formula to sort of hang your story loosely on famous historical figures, places, objects, and treasures, and then you could kind of play fast and loose with what you want to incorporate that's actually from supposed real history and your story and fiction and making it fun, but making it feel grounded. I think that's what it does so well. And me not being a student of history like you are, I, I don't know what's real and what's not. So it gets really interesting when you hear about these historical shadowy organizations and cover-ups and lying to the queen and famous explorers that run afoul of whatever, ancient spirits and all this kind of thing. It's really cool. And I think this story in particular, you think of Uncharted already and Nate and Sully and you think of treasure hunting, but really this whole thing starts as a quest for a lost city, right? It actually starts really strange because Nate's selling his ring. So you're already like, you know, bells are, alarms are already going off. Like what's, what's happening here. Then the quest for the lost city just basically leads to the discovery of, you know, an ancient kingdom doomed by a poison water supply that's supposedly beholden to some god punishing people and a, and a genie, basically, a jinn, a, a genie. And this ancient sinister organization that's basically intending to use this water towards its own evil ends. So this thing that starts out to be a treasure hunt and maybe a quest for knowledge and a quest for history turns into trying to stop this evil organization from obtaining this thing that they shouldn't have, that they want to use to control people and sort of rule by fear by using this hallucinogenic water. So it's a really interesting story and kind of unique. I've never really heard of anything quite like that. And I like the way, again, it really makes... It plays up the character of Nate and Sully, not just these, whatever, greedy treasure hunters that are sort of out to line their pockets. They, they're, they're turned into proper heroes because of what they realize they have to do. And that's just very clever storytelling to make these guys proper, feel like proper heroes. Yeah, it's, um, it all works. It's all quite symphonic, you know? And I think what's fun about the the old history is <clears throat> you were saying like, well, I don't know the history. And I'm like, well, the reality is no one does. Yeah. Because you have this idea of Drake being out and he's writing his, his letters and he's writing in his notebook, but he can't, he just can't let them know these things and how it brings in John D and the secret society. This is what I'm saying. Like you have to, all you have to do is line up the dates if you want it to make sense. Right. And make sure they're all kind of around each other and they're all doing these things. And then you could say whatever you want, because we really do not know what what these what these guys were doing. They were tracking themselves. They were writing notes. They had their logs and all of this. But it's entirely possible that they were off doing things. I mean, isn't Blackbeard's treasure like one of the greatest you know legends from that era sure. that, that even pirates were doing and, and people encountering those things and all that? So it's, it's good stuff. It's so one fun. Other one other thing I wanted to ask you getting away from the history is the more supernatural stuff mm. or maybe we'll say lack thereof. Michael Amaro wrote in and said, hi, Colin and Dagan. Yo, I have to say this game is incredibly paced after recently playing two and three back to back. Three is the better game to me personally. What were your thoughts on Drake's hallucinations 
and the gameplay being modified to support this in the final sections. I thought it was a brilliant way to spice up gameplay in a way that was much more effective than the weird guardian enemies in the final chapters of Uncharted 2. Mm. Thanks, boys. (laughs) So I want to talk about the hallucinations and I want to talk about the lack of supernaturalism, although there is this intended supernaturalism that isn't really explained. I remember this created a lot of different theories. I remember we wrote it. uh, I didn't write it. Someone else did on IGN that like is Marlowe actually like 400 years old or something like that. Oh, shit. Because she seems to be connected to this secret society and all of that. But that's not none of that's true. And it so it's funny because as Uncharted fans were trained to kind of go in and be like, okay, let's look around and where are the supernatural elements? We got the historical elements. But when you look around here, there are some supernatural elements. Like where does Talbot go? He leaves behind the tarot card. He gets shot. There's all this weird stuff that doesn't really make sense. And maybe people have explained it, but I've not really seen it. But yeah, there is no overriding supernatural element to the to the game, which is different than the first two. And I dig that. I like that. The the, the treasure is this water. And it's right. and it's crazy. I mean, Drake did everything he could to make sure no one ever found out about it. So I think that that's cool. Some people look at it, I think, as an overreaction to the consternation some people felt about being bludgeoned with just weird supernatural shit, especially the end with Lazarevich and Uncharted 2. I think that that was, I, I thought that was kind of weak. Mm. It's, you know, the blue sap and all of that. So what do you think of, of this? The idea that they're hallucinating and, and they show it and they do it in really nice, they do a really nice job with it. But I'm wondering, um, did you like it or not? Yeah, I love that. I mean, first of all, the first hallucination scene where you play is Drake going through the bazaar, going through that marketplace, and he's tripping. What I mean, first of all, just as a concept, what a great idea! I thought, you know, it's one of that. When I play Uncharted games, and this was no different than Uncharted Three. I know I've said this in past episodes, but I'm talking to myself. You know, I'm like out loud. What? Oh my god! Sometimes laughing out loud, just out of joy, out of, out of encountering. These experiences and coming across these ideas and just as a, as a creative, I think, too, just kind of tipping my cap to the people who created this game and just thinking of these things, this inventive gameplay and these inventive sort of set piece moments that the game is built upon. You know, it's built upon all these moments that are like jaw dropping, awe inspiring ideas. And I love playing is that now. I would have loved to have seen more melty, distorted visuals really elongating the limbs and really making it like a funhouse mirror. But again, I said it earlier, they might have been beholden to the technology at that point, not only in the visuals, but making those visuals a playable piece of the game. That may have been a bridge too far for that time, developing this in 2010. 2011 so but i loved again i i love the idea of it as a creative i'm always thinking how can we take that further and now if you did a game like that maybe everything would be melting and distorting and you would see people morphing into animals and the limbs really stretching 20 feet and things like that but i love the idea of it and i you know i have to say kyle in the beginning of the game too with the character of john d and investigating into that and the fact that this was a warlock and he had spells and there were these mutant undead spiders that they leave kind of un- 
relatively unexplained that they kind of just drop after a while. It seemed like they were going to do more with the supernatural, maybe occult stuff. But again, maybe it's kind of refreshing that they kind of drop it because you and I had talked about things like the Nazi characters in earlier iterations being a tip of the cap and a nod to like things like Indiana Jones. But again, like not saying, okay, the Germans are just looking for sources of power and dabbling into this supernatural, maybe things that they could harness and leverage in order to dominate the world or whatever. So just kind of putting that aside and making it a story about this organization that is not related to Nazi Germany. They're actually English. So they're actually allied powers, right? If you really think about it. And they're going after this thing that they could use to further their own ends, you know, that they could use to instill fear and dominate. And I think that was interesting. It's interesting that they dropped the supernatural stuff, but, you know, it seems like such a complex tapestry to weave a game like this. I love the way Uncharted 3 specifically feels like a fun story that you get invested in, but it's not too complicated. It's not too heady. But there are things in the game that, and I've seen criticisms and I understand them, that it seems like things were dropped, things were left untied and unresolved. And I guess that feels just a little bit sloppy. And I guess that, that that's the chink in the armor maybe of this game, that maybe you can't introduce things like that if you're not going to run them through to the end and really be consistent. But I got to I got to think that's really hard to tie up all those loose ends and make sure everything is resolved when you get into this. I don't know, you got characters, you got bad guys, you got ancient historical things that you're trying to resolve. You got different places in the world and you're trying to kind of bring it into like a tidy package and that's got to be that's got to be tough to do. Yeah, um when I see something like the bugs in Uncharted 3 just as a game person just been in the world a long time and yeah making our games now that's a thing where it's like oh we have to use that again we got that tech working it's got to be used at least a couple more times mm, it reminds me a lot you'll see on uncharted 4 there's a specific mechanic a sliding and like a hook shot kind of mechanic which is cool but they use it constantly and it's and you could tell it's because which i thought was so corny because i'm like why do you keep encountering things like this over and over again but it's because they got it to work and they're like right. all right we need to use this now you spent two months kind of tweaking this and we got to get this this tech up. We can get it running at 30 frames and all that. So that's the way I see things like that. It's kind of um, I'm not, not, not that I'm forgiving them. In fact, it could be the exact opposite because you could look at it as um, quote unquote lazy developing. I hate that that term. But remember, they made this game in two years. It's just it's incredible. It's insanity. Plus, it that's has a multiplayer incredible. Mode. You know, so it, it, the whole multiplayer suite is a whole nother thing. I don't understand how they did it. It's just. Naughty Dog's output during the PlayStation 3 era is insane because, of course, they follow this two years after this with The Last of Us. So it's uh, and then three years after that is Uncharted 4. And then they have the last leg or the lost legacy after that. And then three years after that, The Last of Us Part 2. I mean, it's a pretty nice run of games. What a resume. Now, do you have any idea, Kyle, about what the team, the size of the team that was creating Uncharted 3? How many people were involved in making the game on the ground level? I would say it's probably Naughty Dog was probably 250 at that point. And I would say okay. it's probably a hundred of them were working on Uncharted, a hundred working on the last one. Some people it's going really in between. Impressive. Yeah, it, it is. It is. And that was like one of the things I wanted to bring up, actually. Paul Andrew wrote in 
and said, hey, brother and other brother, one feature of Uncharted 3 that I enjoyed and hasn't quite caught on in other third person games is context sensitive melee animations. Mm. For example, grabbing the fish and hitting enemies with it in the market or pushing an enemy against the wall and punching them. Did you guys notice these? Was there an animation that stuck out to you? Other than expense, do you think there's a, a reason this hasn't caught on in a broader market? This is the shit that makes Naughty Dog games Naughty Dog games is because they find these. It's amazing, actually, when when Drake's going through growing through bodies in the market in Yemen, pushing through them, arms moving, everyone's moving naturally. It's a really incredible work of technological art to, to make something like that happen on the PlayStation 3 and then to give contextual clues, which The Last of Us, of course, was like the king of this shit. And you mm-hmm. can tell it started in Uncharted where, oh, you're near this corner and there's a thing here. This guy's head's getting bashed against that corner. That's that's the animation that's happening. That's the very last of us. And you could see the makings of that here because there is a lot of stuff like that. And you see that in the barroom brawl. You see that in in various melees later on in the game, too. It's the little things that make this game so grand. And so I notice the melee animations, of course, but I notice all of the random shit in this game. There's just so much going on. I thought even during the hallucination sections in the desert or the desert village and all of that, where you can't interact with everything, it would be fun to see how they framed everything and look at for the seams in the game and how it all works, how the AI works and all that, because it's very complex. And this is the kind of stuff they, that I just don't think a lot of people think about, but you notice it when it's like you said, why isn't it in other games? Cause it's hard and it's expensive. And this is the kind of thing a first party gets away with doing not, a third party that has much stricter deadlines and, and monetary goals and all of that. But this is the kind of stuff that I think game developers realize differentiates their games from other games. It's anyone can make a game like the last of us from stem to stern as a playable experience, but it's the interim, all the interim stuff, the writing, the just, it's all of the little things that make it tick. The last of us isn't a, isn't, a masterpiece because it's this post-apocalyptic third-person shooter. It's a masterpiece because Ellie can sneak up behind a guy if, if the code tells her to do it just right and bash a brick over his head at just this right section, and it'll only happen there, and you'll probably not see it. And if you want to see a game that does that, has that shit all over it, The Last of Us Part Two. I mean, it's so insane how that game is almost like a ballet of combat and all the different ways it can go, and you can see they framed it all out, every possibility. That's so cool. And so man. you see that here. Did you, do you like the little things? I mean, do you you must having played three of these games now notice that this stuff is not in other games? Absolutely. And they're building and they're improving as they go. I I noticed so many of the little nuanced things. Now I didn't know about grabbing the fish and hitting an enemy yeah. with the fish. I didn't even realize that. I got to go back and investigate into that. But just in general, how nuanced things were is very apparent from the beginning. I noticed one thing where both adult and kid Drake. When they're walking around and they're kind of exploring Kid Drake in the museum in Columbia and then later on just Nate in the tombs and the crypts and the chateau, when they're walking around, they're just looking around like they'll do a thing that's a very naturalistic movement where they'll just touch the wall, not even like kind of half thinking, you know, raise the arm and touch the wall as they're looking somewhere else. It was all very naturalistic and you have to credit the mocap which means, of course, you have to credit the performances by Nolan North and Richard McGonigal and Emily Rose and just the brilliant acting and the brilliant writing. But there is something really special in this game where the emoting and the interaction and just the naturalism in the acting 
in the cutscenes and in the playable moments is just next level for me. And you're talking about a game that's 11 years old, dude, which is pretty crazy to think about. And you know what I mean? Not only to have that in a film and how impressive it is visually, but to have incorporate all of that into something playable is just a, a, a remarkable achievement. And I really recognize it from early on that that, that you, and you get so invested because it really does feel like a movie because of the animation, because of the mocap, because of the quality of the acting, the thoughtfulness of the writing, the dialogue, all of that stuff. I really found it to be some of the best I've encountered in games so far. And when you think of, of course, I played, I should say, I played the remastered version on PS5 on the Uncharted Nathan Drake collection. I have the PS3 version right here and I love playing, you know, I could have just popped it on the PS3 in my studio and I kind of love going back and exploring the origins and the originals like we did with Metal Gear Solid so far. But I was happy to play the remastered version because it really brings all of that stuff to the forefront and how great this game is. And I was I was just really taken aback. And for the melee combat, I thought it was cool to for it to feel familiar coming off the first two games recently, but also to evolve it, to have the thing where you could drop down, hang from a ledge, sneak behind an enemy and pull him down so he plummets to his death. Or come from the... Stealth is a little... Oh, I, I think stealth could have been a little better in this game. The enemy AI is pretty tough on normal, even on normal. But to come behind and choke a dude out so you don't have to actually go toe-to-toe. And the melee combat being a few steps, you know, punch headbutt, and then dodge with the triangle button, and then, of course, you could undo, you know, if you're being grappled or you're being held, you could break out with the circle button. But, so I thought it was enough. But those little nuanced animations and the visuals and the acting, even the facial acting and the emoting, which you're not really expecting in a PlayStation 3 game, was just top-notch. Yeah, totally. And I, I, I dare I say it's going to remain um, no matter how many games you play, it's going to still remain up there. The only games that are really going to beat it in this regard are, are their own games. Yeah. 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 And uh, so I'll be interested to see what you think about about those things when they happen. We were talking a little bit about combat. I was curious what, what you thought about the gunplay and the combat. I remember Uncharted 3's combat was a little controversial, I remember, because the aiming was off, but they I think they patched it. And so if you play the Blue Point PS4 port, which you did, then then I think everything should be well there. Did you enjoy the 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 combat, the shooting? I love it. I mean, it really just makes me, I've said this before, third-person shooters, I got to dig deeper. I got to delve in because those are, that's really what I'm playing this game for. Gears of honest. War, dude. You should play Gears of War. That's I like the king of the third-person. I got to yeah. jump into Gears of War. And you've recommended that to me before. So that's what I find myself looking forward to besides the story and just learning about the characters and the character building, which I love. I even the and the puzzle moments we'll talk about that but the combat I found it to be really fun my only criticism and I'm surprised that they didn't improve it and maybe there's a way to change it that I don't know about but the aiming reticle being white especially when you're playing in so many desert environments is mm. really agree that's an egregious error they have they really it's amazing to me like when you're ambushing the convoy with Salim and his tribe on horseback Again, nod to Indy 3. Super fun moment. So hard to see the aiming reticle because you're on a desert sky, which is practically white, so light blue, and sand. So you can't see it. But pound for pound, the combat I thought was, you know, for me, super satisfying. 
simplifying the cover system was great. Popping out a cover and firing the assortment of weaponry. I thought was awesome and satisfying. And there was one thing that I'm a little bit naive about Kyle and ignorant of, and I don't know if this is a thing or not, but one thing with the combat in this game, they definitely evolved it in terms of difficulty for me, at least from the first two versions where the enemy AI ramps up and gets more difficult as you get deeper into the game. Early on, you could melee with a guy and the other surrounding enemies will leave you alone. But later on, if you go toe to toe with a dude there, some other enemy is going to shoot you while you're trying to do that. I appreciated that ramping level of difficulty because it forces you to form strategies. You can't just be wild and jump into the fray. You have to kind of really build out how you're going to tackle certain moments with the desert colony or the assault on the airport later on, or, you know, the, the later levels where the enemy AI is a little more daunting. You got armored guys, one shot kills with their shotguns. So you got to really kind of build out your tactics and I appreciated that. But one thing I didn't know about was it seemed like whatever loadout I chose was the loadout that the enemies were dropping. So I could easily restore the ammo of my desired weapons rather than switching to something that might yeah, the game seems to know. Yeah. It seems to know. Now, yeah. that's built. So that's not just me. That was actually kind of built into I want this, you know, I want the AK-47 or I want the Heckler and Koch. And this enemy is going to drop it so I could reload that weapon rather than switching to something. It I'm seems, not as good at I, I using. get that vibe from a lot of games. And I think that okay. this is this is not to say that it's hard coded in, but there might be some sort of t- tendency system or something in it, you know, where it's like we're realizing you like this weapon and we want to right. make this fun for you. So and maybe that's a normal thing, too, where on difficult levels, maybe it's not so much. Maybe they don't placate as much. I don't know. Yeah, the. Uh, we have to get to Gears, but we'll, we'll do it on the show. I, I, a little so known fun. thing about me is that I, I really like Gears of War. A lot of people don't know that about me. I'm not a, I wasn't a Halo guy, but I like Gears of War. Mm. And 1, 2, and 3 were the ones I played. I played 4, too, but I, I don't think I got all the way through it. I actually played it on a stream back at Kind of Funny, but we'll get to Gears of War. Because if you like third-person cover-based shooters, which is, th- that's the king of so them. So fun. So fun. The, really, the, there was a few, there are a couple games you should look into, though, like uh, on PS2, Black. Okay. And, um, Writing them down. Kill Switch. Kill Switch is widely seen as kind of the, the progenitor of Gears of War in some ways. Okay. Yeah, you've recommended and then, that one. And then there me. are wonderful, we'll play it on the show for sure. Spec Ops The Line is probably my favorite third person shooter and Vanquish. Oh, yeah. Oh, what's Vanquish for? What system? Vanquish was PS3, but they ported it PS3. to PS4. That's a platinum game. Oh, so, shit. Yeah, so you check that. Vanquish is fucking awesome. Oh, and I when you play Vanquish, that. if you do. Keep in mind what someone said to me once, which is so true. It's like, doesn't this look like a G.I. Joe game? Oh, so just keep that in, does, keep that in mind as you, okay. as you play. All right. I'm writing that uh, here in my notes. But back here in Uncharted 3 World, I want to talk about a few moments, and I'm curious about mm. what you think of them. <laughs> my favorite moment in all of Uncharted is the cruise ship, and Stephen King wrote into us, but not that Stephen King, and says, Maybe Hello, is. Super Mario Bros. What was your favorite set piece in the game? And why was it the sinking cruise ship from the moment Drake blows a hole into the hull of the boat leading to the sink shipping before tipping onto its side? The Ramsey then Ramsey shooting out the wall, which is the ceiling at that point of glass, causing the mass water to rush into the ship as Drake desperately runs to escape. This is the excitement of Naughty Dog's Uncharted series at its finest. This is easily my favorite set piece from any of the Uncharted games, and in my opinion, rivaled only by the train sequence. 
from Uncharted mm. 2, and he's talking about the train sequence towards the end of that game, not the beginning. The cruise ship is iconic. I mean, I I love, love, love the cruise ship. And I actually like the whole ship graveyard dock side thing, too. A lot of people don't like that, but there's something in this section that's insane to me. And this is where the technical fidelity of Naughty Dog comes in, is that it's all waving. Yes. The entire time. Do you have any idea? I mean, I know you do, but just out there, the Royal U, do you have any idea how hard that is? That's insane. To make that make it look like that. And to have it all working so that you're having gunplay. So think about it like you're fighting. Everything's moving like this. And then you're you're all fighting. Bullets are all coming at you and it all works. It's, it's a complete feat of game of of design. It's amazing. I, I hate when people say like, oh, it's a little slow here. And so I'm like, this is the fucking coolest part of the game. You know, the whole the whole lead into the cruise ship is the cool is, in my opinion, the I know it ran the Ramsey's thing is random and it is. It I don't is. care about Ramsey's at all. I don't give a fuck about that character. But just going through all of this, even if they had to justify it somehow, someone had an idea of like, what if we put everything on moving water? What if the next step is is this instead of the snow and the mountains and all the shit we've done in the past, the jungles? Now we're on the open water and a cruise ship splits in half and sinks and it and you're in the room and then the rooms turn 90 degrees and then the rooms turn 90 degrees again when you go back to it. I mean, I think that this is this was I was really excited to ask you about this because I love this section of the game. And when I was watching the the uh, the gameplay of it, it all I was like, I remember this beat to beat beat to beat when you walk into the cruise ship, the fucking chandeliers do. I mean, do you, there's so much that makes this this work. It's there's incredible. so much work here. The, the chandelier, like the boat moving and the chandeliers going and then the chandeliers hitting into the glass and going back and everyone's talking there's dialogue and they all have movements and paths and it's all happening and there's creaking and the rain's hitting and my god what do you think it's such a feat man it's so i love this whole section of the game like you do i love you calling it the ship graveyard that's perfect description when you first encounter ramses you break out of of your captivity you're in that wharf first of all that's when the combat starts getting difficult and the enemy ai ratchets ratchets up where you have to form some sort of strategy with the docks, with the cargo containers, swimming in the water, climbing up on the various ships and sort of forming your approach because the bad guys are going to they're going to go at you and they're going to come on mass and then sort of going to the docks where everything starts waving. You better stock up on your ammo because your aiming is going to be way off to when you enter the ship and everything's sort of ebbing and flowing and going with the tide up and down. It's such a fun experience and it's so thoughtful and it's so immersive it's like you forget you're playing a game after a while and you know an older game that's a decade old it's pretty crazy and it all comes to a head when you're in the ship and it's turning on its side and you know who played a lot of this section Graydon did we we kind of he played a couple of chapters of the game he was in and out but he I he's gotten really good at third person shooters because of his Fortnite. So oh, he jumped on and Fart he, night. He, it's crazy though. He came in, he was just like, all right, what does what? How do I reload? And he was just off to the races. He was like amazing. And he ended up doing a lot of this part because we went death for death. And if he didn't die, he just ran off with it. Uh, like the old days. Yeah. 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 Except, you would, tell me, you, except you would tell me, oh, there's a secret down that pit. And then I would jump into it. <laughs> yeah it was the same thing and uh 
Dude, but what a what a wonderful idea to kind of do it and just to make it happen. What like you said, what a feat to make this whole thing interactive. And you know what the other thing is that's really struck me about this? It's a I know they tried to make this one feel a little more open world. I don't really get that because I I think this is pretty linear like the other two games. But I love the fact that they make it feel large in scale they make it feel like a big scope but they still keep it linear you still know where Mm -hmm. to go you don't really make a wrong turn so the choreography and the navigation is very planned out and they do it with color and they do it with movement and they do it with timing and they do it with dialogue and all the tools at their disposal but they do it very well in this game it's a masterwork of that and the ship is the epitome of that where you're inside and you kind of know where to go. Not that it's always easy. You're going to have to redo it a couple of times and figure out, you know, how do I hang on to this door? And now I'm on standing on the toilet sideways and stuff like that. But it's, it's fun. And again, also, I think like the first two, the level of challenge is just so it's really, really done to be engaging, but not overly frustrating. You, you're, you want to rise to the challenge. You don't want to rage quit. And again, this is playing on normal. And of course, once you get good, you could do the, the 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 more hostile modes, hard and difficult, and all that kind of super difficult and all that kind of thing. But I love that, and you know that's that's part of the equation that I think goes overlooked a lot with these games is that you want to make it engaging but not frustrating for the player, and they're very good at that with this. And I think maybe the best so far in where the level of challenge is increased, I think in three, which is good because we we've experienced the first two, right? right. So we're ready for a new, uh, maybe a rise in difficulty, but I like the fact that you don't want to walk away from it. It doesn't turn, the experience doesn't turn sour because of the difficulty. I think you hit on something really important about game design and why you make a choice about, and why the choice, unfortunately, is becoming more and more open. But there's a real advantage to linearity. And it's to anticipate everything the gamer can possibly see and do. Or at least to better anticipate it. We often remark about Bethesda open world games and how they break. And how you you kind of have to give it to them for even trying. Because of course they're going to break. They break in the most random ways. You can't anticipate, even in really deep QA pools, how... And, and, and in playtesting, how is this thing going to break? And I always tell that story mm. about New Vegas when, which is technically an Obsidian game, but the game breaks, broke for me in such a way where if, and this is the random shit that happens in these games. You have a cowboy hat on the cowboy hat. If it breaks and you have already gone, cause if you get hit enough, it breaks in quotes and you go to the Vegas strip, you can never leave. Like, oh, there's like the game breaks down like that in random ways. And you have to, figure out how these things tie into each other and why that happens like why did that even matter you have to go into the why does it matter that i have this thing equipped what is what is this thing attached to what what is triggering all of these things in this game and that's its own situation and that's why i think open worlds they obviously take a really long time but why i think they should be more seldom released and why i think some some companies just should get away from doing open worlds because some companies are just doing them way better like i think i think gorilla with horizon forbidden west is like wow that's a fucking that's an open world. But when you when you make the decision to make a linear game, you like you said, you can anticipate what the player is going to do. You can draw their eye. And I'm glad you brought attention to the the great art of drawing one's eye because it's done in clever ways. There's just an extra light here 
there's a splash of color there. Sometimes it's really obvious. I always make fun of The Last of Us because they uh, in the beginning when you're getting chased, they must have had playtesting where people didn't know where to go because in in the in the fucking game, there's a spotlight on it and then like yellow <laughs> tape like swinging in the wind. And I'm like, it looks so stupid, but you know, that's why they put it there because no one can figure out where to go. And that's because that's a more open part of the game. So when you choose linearity, you get to just it's like being a filmmaker in a way it's grander than that. But you get to just every frame counts and you assume the guy's going to go here. You're heat mapping, play testing so you can see where people are going and what cover they're using. And then you know that you should make all of your one off animations and maybe your encounters in this way. And that creates something that's fine. You'll never. In other words, a game as fine as an Uncharted game in the open world will never happen. Mm. That's not to say that we don't love open world games. I mean, I do. I play open world games all the time, but they're never going to be fine like this. And I think the closest we've ever gotten is Red Dead Redemption 2. And that tells you a lot because that's four years ago. It's not like that game just came out. So. And and what was so interesting about that game is, is that it's empty. It's it's alive and full of life. Everything belongs there, but it doesn't. It, it's not like some guy like waving you on the side of the road, being like, "Hey, I got a task for you." <laughs> kind of stupid shit like that. So does that does that vibe with you? I think that the art of the linear game is is dying, and that's a bummer because there's a there's a place and time for it, and I think it, the place is often, or the time I should say is often the place is almost everywhere. Why wouldn't yeah, we want that? Right. Uh, I think so, you make a great point. I never really thought about open world compared to linear in that with linear, the benefit is you could really craft the experience to the most minute detail and really build a very specific experience, which there's a place for. And some people say, well, open world games are just the opposite. You craft your own experience. There's it's choose your own adventure. And I understand the benefits of that, too. But like you're saying, there's a place for both these things. Right. And you and know. the the open world comes with a sense of deadness because it think can. about it. It can fall. I, and I, fallout three was a game changer for me. When I played fallout three in 2008, I was completely melted my mind. I couldn't even believe that game. I mean, it, it's, it's awesome. But the reality is, is you walk out of the vault after the intro and the choice you can do is you can go anywhere. So if you're the game designer, <laughs> how do you stop that from happening? Like, what do you do? You draw them in certain places and most people will take what's called the golden path, right? And this will get them from point A to point B to point C. But the reality is, is I can go anywhere and do anything I want. I don't have to right. go to the main story. Right. And they do things like the enemies are a little harder. Think of Dragon Warrior. What happens when you cross a bridge? The enemies get way harder. That's a right. signal to you that you're not supposed to do that yet. Right, right. And the game signals that to you in some ways you're going to run into more and more difficult enemies. But if you if instead of saying the player picks up the controller, he moves down the hallway and goes into this room. And so what's in the room in Fallout three? It's okay. The player walks out of Vault 101 and he can go literally anywhere he wants. Now what? And you just do the best you can to make everything interesting. And it's kind of telling you a story, but it's dead. Yeah, it's not active. It's not bringing you from beat to beat. And I wish we would in in, I wish we would embrace that more because I actually feel you could see a world where these games were really important, I think, to turning other developers off to this, because I think a lot of them don't think they can do games like this. Ah. And so, like, why bother? Mm. I think there's a piece of it that there. But you could have seen it going the other way where it's like, don't you realize you guys copy everyone and doing everything? Why wouldn't you try to copy this? And I think it's almost a sign of respect because goddamn what happened five years after Fallout 3 came out? Everything was an open world. You know what happened five years after PUBG came out? Everything was a battle royale. 
But what happened five years after Uncharted came out? Nothing. I mean, nothing as far as Uncharted, because it, it, it just it just cleared its lane. So it is very interesting to think about that. That is really and, uh, yeah. fascinating way of looking at it. I love that. I, I really do. Yeah. And the trade off for open world is maybe you crave exploration in games, but it's weird because the point of being satiated or satisfied or landing on a solution or a resolution is untold, you know, and maybe I don't know. I don't know. Open world. I'm like you, though, and I think it comes from being an old school gamer, too. Like, well, I want something finite. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, no, I it could be too. 40 hours long. It could be a Final Fantasy game. I don't care. 40, 50 hours long, 60. But I want it to end at some right. point. Right. Exactly. Like the golden path being its own thing, but that there's got to be some some way to feel like you've completed it or seen it all. And I guess sure. there's, it's, a, it's much more of a PC and I mean personal computer yeah. style game that migrated over. That's a that's from their world, just like shooters. And some of our stuff has gone over there, seeing how on PlayStation games are selling on Steam now. It's like, OK, so yeah. some things are migrating over there. Yeah, yeah. I love open worlds. I just I just don't want everything to become an open world. Sure. Because there's only two ways to make an open world. Well, now you either have to have a massive workforce, which yeah. is expensive or AI tools. And both of those are going to be good solutions to make open big worlds. But it makes you wonder why play a video game more and more that's being tailored by AI knowing what you like as opposed to someone handcrafting. This is the kind of shit I think about when they're in the hideout in the game. Mm. They keep showing a shot of Drake at a table and behind him you can see like a kitchen and there's like shelves with items on it and there's like a counter and you can't really tell what everything is, but you can tell it's like some ingredients and some blah, blah, blah. And the reality is that some artist made all of those assets and then some designer put them all there. And that's there's some sort of intent to that. And you can say, well, that's the way it is in every game. However, the, the game frames it so that you have to see it. So they know that they had to do that. But there's no reason you're ever going to have to see much of anything in Fallout except for the golden path. Right. So. So, yeah, it is. I think I think everyone has been been. I don't know, carried off by this this clarion call of open worlds, and I think people are suddenly starting to realize this is not we don't only want this. We don't only want choice and agency. It's not all about that. And um, yeah, so I think this game shows that off a lot. And I, I want to talk about another sequence in the game. And Jacob does as well. He wrote in and said, what did you guys think about the desert mirage sequence after the mm -hmm. cargo plane crashes? Personally, I was blown away by that wide of shot of Drake scaling the massive sand dune for its incredible scale, only to realize I was controlling the scene in real time. That is a cool moment. The, so good. The whole sequence from him stumbling into Elena's apartment to the near end sequence when he kind of finds himself more put together in the desert after that long trying sequence. It's good shit the them kind of finding an agreement with each other elena not going with him and then kind of busting through and helping him get on the cargo plane the cargo plane fight is iconic in and of itself i mean that 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 fight is replicated in the movie that just came oh, out is it really yeah yeah that's it's like an iconic fight and i love that and then the and then he goes down into the sand and walks through the sand all this and all the hallucinations and just, there's a lot of shit here uh, what did you think of all that the desert moment, the whole desert moment of after the plane crash, when Nate's sort of abandoned in this massive, vast desert, really spoke to me because 
again, this is somebody who enjoys the, the combat, the fast pace, the third person shooter elements, being engaged in all of that. I love how quick everything is, but I was so impressed that the game what and the designers weren't afraid to just let this moment breathe. You're not doing a lot. You're not solving puzzles. You're not necessarily exploring. You're not doing you're not engaged in combat. You're just sort of marooned in this desert. And you're the scale was so impressive of pulling out and just controlling a little Drake who's walking very slow and he's exhausted and he's baking in the sun and he's 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 completely parched. And then you find out after you think you gain a little control that you're going in circles and then you're seeing mirages and the game just lets you experience this. There's no flop sweat for saying, okay, are people going to tune out? Is this too slow? Again, just in doing something that's cinematic and something that you're controlling, but you're barely controlling, right? Like there's not a lot to do for those moments. You got to let it breathe. The game's kind of on a timer, in fact. And then all the way until you finally find the abandoned desert settlement. So there's a pretty good deal of time, maybe an entire chapter or most of a chapter where you're just kind of doing nothing. And that comes at the tail end of some of the most frenetic moments of the game, the cargo plane battle and falling on the, you know, vis-a-vis the parachute crate, Mm. all that intense stuff, you know, hijacking the plane, getting in there, doing the combat, the crates busting out, the airport battle is really hard. And really difficult. You leave Elena behind. It's very frenetic. And then you get to that point where it's just very slow paced. And sort of backing those moments up to each other was just so cool. And the game just knows. Like, there's another thing that I realized later in the game. And I didn't mind the puzzle solving moments in the game. For instance, I love the one that's a little more interactive where you kind of got to go in a certain sequence of the floor tiles. In fact, I would love to see more physical um, challenges being incorporated with the puzzles like that, where, you know, your kind of movement and agility and control is part of the solving the puzzle. I think that would be really fun. But the game knows when to stop the puzzle solving. Like the puzzle solving stops at a certain point in this game. It's not tied throughout because when things get critical and you're looking for Sully and everything's coming to a head and you're right on the bad guy's heels and you have the whole hallucination moment and you, things are getting ratcheted up you don't want to stop to have to solve puzzles at that moment so the yeah, game like knows flipping through the of, journal you know? right you don't want to be flipping you can't even access the journal at a certain point which is right. really smart you know just leave that part out that's for the first half of the game so the game knows when to build those moments and the desert thing was really a big part of that and shout out to the way the wind blows and it's forming those very specific rounded sand dunes and the environment is very appealing, but also very um, vexing and vast. And you really feel for, for Nate at that moment, he finally finds some shade underneath that red rock and you have the, the VO of the poetry over the top. And it's a very, again, very cinematic. It really feels like a film and the game just gives you so much, you know, it's not all puzzle solving. It's not all exploration platforming. It's not all third-person shooter combat. There's there's other things in this. And I think that's what makes it so impressive. I've never really experienced a thing like that, especially in a quote-unquote action-adventure game where you just stop doing everything for 25 minutes. 
You know, you're just kind of trudging, crawling through the desert on your last legs. Shout out. I mean, it was just just an amazing thing to experience and a complete delight. Yeah, I think this is what Justin Richmond brought to the project, the director of the game, who is a designer on Uncharted 2. And what's interesting about him is that he went to Riot and I was looking at his Moby Games page. I'm looking at it again right now. He has mm. no credits after Uncharted 3 at all. Oh, wow. And so I don't know if it's because he's working on League of Legends and there's no uh, there's no way to really show that in that or whatever the case might be. I don't sure. really know. But I know that he went over there, of course, both Naughty Dog and Ryder in Santa Monica, California. But I think that he brought. I think the game is noticeably different in this regard from a cinematic point of view, not only in the framing of some of the shots and all of this, but yeah, these sequences that dare you to slow down the pace and do a little something different. You can look at it, you know, sardonically and say like, this is a padding maneuver to add hours to the game. And it probably is, Mm, but mm. so is a lot (laughs) that happens in a game because otherwise you're just going to go from sequence to sequence, like having Nate just run like, I, I, I love in games when you're supposed to do serious shit, but you can actually do whatever you want. Like, so in like Skyrim, you can like jump on the guy's heads while they're talking to you and then just like jump off them and they just never react and all that kind of stuff. And it's fun. And I like that. There's a place for that, but that's a more open world thing. I like games that force you to slow down, like no running here. Oh, we're going to pan the camera a little bit for you so you can look at things. That's what I was saying earlier when you're going in. I think that town in Yemen, it would it would be cool to watch that sequence slowly so you can see everything you are missing. And also, again, don't see everything the way the things are seamed together. There's an f- awesome shot when they're in uh, Syria and it looks awesome, but it's like of the night sky with like the turrets. But there's a turret in the background that you can tell is not in the geometry. It's too far away. And so it looks it's just a flat part of the background. And, and it's fun to be able to see that stuff and be able to stare at it. But they never really let you stare at things for for too long. And they're constantly challenging you to get down with the cinematic nature of the game. This is almost kind of blase today but god on ps3 in 2011 midway through the ps3 era getting a little late in the ps3 era it's still something new and so yeah i, I a huge shout out to the whole cargo so plane desert sequence the fighting and, and him finding his way towards the end and hadari shataro wrote into us about the ending he says hey there massive meat moriarty's <laughs> what do you think of the game's ending sully's fatherly nature with nate that's never been fully addressed finally comes to the fore and Elena and Nate's relationship is shown on screen for the first time with success. It was a great sense of satisfaction for me with the conclusion of a game franchise I essentially grew up with. While I love Uncharted 4, part of me wishes the series was allowed to end here. Thanks for the best podcast on the internet and go on slurping that well water. I, know I won't. I'm afraid to. <laughs> Thanks, Adari. I don't. I think it could have been satisfying to end here, but I really. Uncharted 4's story and ending are awesome, so I, I'm glad uh-huh. it didn't. But and we probably won't get there on knockback because it's too new, but you should definitely play Uncharted 4. I mean, oh, I can't play it for wait. fun. But uh, what do you think of the ending? I, you know what? One of the things I really like about this and the story is this double fixation on rings, this dual, this duality mm. of and it happens multiple times. The fake ring and the real ring, Drake's ring and the wedding ring, you know, et cetera, and so on. Sure. So there's this this comparison that I think is interesting and obvious, but. I like that there are hints like you see the wedding ring on her hand. You wonder like, oh, she married to someone else. Then it kind of comes out that she's Drake and her married and maybe still married. And there's a lot there that we don't know about. And I like that they bring in Elena like that with a little bit of drama. And I like that Elena plays 
the strong but kind of fake strong woman where she's mm. like, yeah, I'm helping you out. There's nothing to it. I'm wearing this ring because it helps me here in this very masculine, you know, misogynistic part of the world. And I'm going to help you out and I'm keeping an eye on you because you're under my under my care and all that. But there's like an extra layer to it with her, with all of it, which is cool. And she, ultimately, she comes incredibly concerned about him. So the end, as I said earlier in the show, is the game allowing things to wrap up nicely. Like, what else could you ask for, really? Then everyone's alive. Nate and Elena kind of respark their their dying relationship. Sully's alive and goes off on his own what do you think of the end? It's uh, I mean, you want to see these characters, especially these three succeed. You want to see them well. You really love these characters. I mean, I especially love Sully and Nate. I really do. And so it's a very satisfying ending and it's a little sentimental. And, I, you know, like Indy, like Spielberg, it's, it's OK to be a little sentimental in an ending. Mm -hmm. There's part of me with this sort of action adventure, treasure hunting, thrill seeking, caper type model that is a little surprised that things don't end on a cliffhanger of some sort. But there's also a lot of wisdom in that, because when you go to the next iteration, you could just do whatever the hell you want. And that's what they've done with this series so far. You know, you could have a complete launching detached launching off point in the next iteration. Just put a pin in this adventure. Later on, it's going to be a new adventure and we could connect it however we want, however little, however much we want to the past chapters. So I think there is wisdom in it. A cliffhanger ending would be fun, but a satisfying ending like this is is also cool where maybe Nate and Elena kind of re-sparkling, re-sparking re their relationship. Maybe there was some sort of very mystifying estrangement, I guess, of some sort um, after the couple of years passed from the previous adventure. I love the way Sully professes his love outright for, for Nate and just basically calls him his son. Because, you know, these are two charismatic, cool dudes. They're always joking around and, you know, being wise asses and everything like that. Sully calls Drake uh, Nate out for that at the end. But, you know, it's nice to have that moment of just professing their love for each other, which is, you know, sort of fun, especially Sully for Nate. And that official taking him under his wing and just saying it in so many words instead of, you know, us ascertaining their affection for each other. And, you know, it makes you wonder where the where the next iteration is going to go. There is something, I think, a little strange in not playing out or fleshing out what happened between Elena and Nate. But mm. I realized also Elena is a cool character because she spends some of this game calling Nate out for things that you could understand, like being very protective of Sully you know, basically saying like, Nate, you're dragging Sully into these things that are endangering his life. He's an older man. You know, how much is too much? How far is too far? She says to him at one point, like, you know, when is this going to end? Like, you know where the lost city is and Marlo doesn't. Isn't that enough? And it's really not. A lot of this is about Nate's obsession and we love him and he's a lovable character and he has a lot of heroic, noble traits that make us root for him but he also does he also also kind of blinded by that obsession where he's not only putting himself at risk but the people around him that care for him that want to protect him he's putting them at risk as well so i like that they kind of fleshed out elena's character with those conversations and 
saying things to Nate that we're kind of angry about on one hand, like stop, like he's a treasure hunter. We want to see him go on crazy missions. But on the other hand, we understand what she's saying, especially when, you know, where Sully's concerned. And then I thought it was really touching too, like Sully's love, obvious love for Nate in this. Not just in the ending, but throughout the game, I think they really kind of brought that to a head and, and fleshed that out. And the characters really feel rich. There's not... These aren't the most unique characters on the face of the planet. You're not rewriting history here. This is not astrophysics. But the characters just feel so grounded and they feel so real and consistent and their personalities feel fully formed. And I think, yeah, by the time this is over, I'm just like ready to jump into the next one. And I'm also wondering too, like I have to say, and you may be able to speak to this, Kyle, like... Is an un- a proper Uncharted 5 ever going to happen? I think so, but I, it's hard to say what it will be without spoiling the fourth one. I think it's okay. I think I think after you play the fourth one, it's obvious what the fifth one is. OK. And and I think everyone that would that knows will agree with that. So you'll see. But um, that's interesting. OK. Yeah. The fourth one is is its own product because it was it's all jumbled up. And, you know, I, I've admitted I think kind of over time as I've gotten further and further away from games media and and embargoes and all that now that I kind of don't deal with PR and don't get early access to games that I was just rushing through so many games just to play them because I had to move on to the next game and I don't do that anymore and I don't I I know Uncharted 4 suffered because of that in my mind because I couldn't play it the way I wanted to play it it's like we gotta do the spoiler cast we gotta it's like oh fuck shut up you're on that that clock right it's like the constant the con- it's just that's so valueless and so i have to give uncharted for another shake and i think i might do that soon just because i want to uh i want to play lost legacy as well which i never played and people have been begging oh. me to play that which is the spinoff so yeah and i think there i think there will be an uncharted 5 there is a rumor that an uncharted ha- was at one time maybe in development maybe is in development not at naughty dog though so it's it's unclear but we know naughty dog is pr- has a lot of power within sony and when they got wind of the last of us remake, obviously they, they basically stole it away and finished it themselves. So who knows if they would let anything happen outside of their studios walls. I don't know, but I'm glad mm. you brought up Drake's obsession because I do agree with you. It's fun to see that it's again, that's not uncommon in the adventure, the adventurer trope fiction vertical of, of uh, storytelling, having the obsessed protagonist, but it is a part of it. And you, you often wonder like, why, why are you so obsessed? But but that's a you get a little more into that in the fourth one, I guess. Oh, so, that's good to know. Okay. So, right. um, yeah, that's all right. Is there anything that we didn't touch on, Dig, that you wanted to talk about with Uncharted Three? You know, I just wanted to clear this up, and maybe I'm missing something. What is Drake's deception to you? I know what it is to me. I think, but I'm not. I'm not a hundred percent sure. I would think that at least part of it, and maybe I'm missing part of this too, is that his that marlo talks about when when drake's captured at one point in yemen she talks about the fact that she's done her due diligence and she's really investigated into his past and found out that he grew up in an orphanage he was basically dumped off by his terrible parents and he basically adopted the francis sir francis drake name on his own that apparently allegedly there's no actual real lineage there. 
So that was kind of his deception, the whole thing with being part of that family and part of those origins and the ring and everything like that. The only other thing I could think of is him, Drake or Nathan sort of, I guess, kind of playing out the same quest that Sir Francis Drake, his idol, the man, the legend, played out in the past where he was on this treasure hunt or this hunt for a lost city and a claim and to forward the cause of England and the queen and everything and then found out that there was this sinister thing at play and covered up the entire thing and even lied to his liege about the whole thing. And Nate was basically doing the same thing in not so many words by saving the world from this threat. And the deception, and that was the deception that it wasn't a treasure hunt this time. It wasn't a, a hunt for fame and glory and treasure. It was something else. So what do you think about that? Because I, I really thought that was going to be pronounced from the beginning, and it was something that I was asking myself the entire time. It yeah, wasn't I don't so know clear I, to me. Yeah, I guess I don't know that I've ever really even thought about it. I guess I would think about the the double entendre of you know inherent in the name drake so you're talking about nathan drake and francis drake and so the deception of francis drake the queen elizabeth and then that would be one of the deceptions or the deception and then the sure. second deception would be i don't know i have no idea i mean i, I guess i really never thought about it it's interesting right yeah yeah it is but what's in a name it's a what's wonderful <laughs> game and i <laughs> I do love, again, bringing it, like you said earlier, bringing in T. Lawrence and just kind of fusing this history together. It's quite fascinating and, and really well done, rapidly done, expertly done, available on PS3 and PS4. So you can play it in both of those places. And so that means you can play it on PS5 as well through the PS4 version if you'd like. And yeah, that's a 2011's Uncharted 3 Drake's Deception as voted on by the audience. Glad we could finally deliver that episode. Dig, we end every episode of Knockback with a joke, a dad joke specifically. Of course. Hit us up. All right, my friend. So fun. Had a great time with the game. Now, Kyle, how many telemarketers does it take to screw in a light bulb? I feel like I've heard this one. Did you hear this I don't, one before? I don't, but I don't know the answer. Let me think. I don't know. Tell me. Tell me. Just one, but he needs to do it during dinner. <laughs> very funny i don't know if i've heard that one after that all right very good not too very bad. good not too bad not too bad all right my friend well it was good to talk to you good to talk to all of you out there and thank you for being here with us we couldn't do it without you pa- patreon.com slash last media and of course new merch lastdamnmedia.store if you want to check that out as well free shipping on all stickers including knockback stickers nice so check those out and uh, we will see you next time for more until then goodbye goodbye Knockback, a retro and nostalgia podcast, is a product and trademark of Last Stand Media and Collins Last Stand LLC and is recorded from Central Virginia and the Philadelphia suburbs, USA. The show was conceived by and is produced by me, Colin Moriarty. My co-host is Dagan Moriarty. Knockback's executive producer is Dustin Furman and the show is edited by associate producer Ben Smith. All of Last Stand's theme music is by Ramon Narvaez. As you know, all of Last Stand Media's shows, including Knockback, are fan-funded on Patreon at patreon.com slash laststandmedia. The following names are at the producer support level or higher on Patreon, and we're grateful for your kindness and generosity.
Stephen Nieder, Ross Marenka, Miguel A. Brewer, Morgan Ashley, Azan, Michael Vecchio, Jerome Ferreira, SLVFMA, Daniel D'Amour, Brad Cooley, Jeremy Key, Patrick Leslie, Malachi Wall, Dave Cowell, Donald John Vader, Stephen Innerfield, Andrew Roman, Lord Starscream, Jacob Donovan, Eduardo Perez, Salty Trees, My Name is Fucking Mayo, Logan Byford, GJ, Eddie Medina, Jason R. Zahn, Christopher Nog, Zeno Adam, Grayson Maxwell, Cody Woodall, Blake Nesbitt, Nuclear Prostate, Sorta Serious Gaming, Colin Farley, Mark Arnold, Zia Parrix, Henry Groth, Relentless Rex, Tristan Palacios, Drew Mullen, Renegade. Graham, Christian R, Jad Rita, Patrick Skipper, Brian Hernandez Espinoza, Chris Kelly, Remington Wilson, Dustin Graff, Peyton Stone, Jalapeno, Josh Allen Rui, Quinton Thedens, Michael Buffel, Dan Root, Esak Parades, Talisman, Christopher Morgan, Andreas Wessling, Randall Halsey, Robbie Nauman, William Holbert, Josh Godfrey, Kalike Souza, Vornak, Daniel Johnson, H. Tronch, Trey W, Antonio C, Jay Getter, Assassinated Devil, Bjorn Campbell, Jeff Mercado, Gregory Silvinsky, Jordan Gale, Of Fortuna, John Zile, Boots, Tyler Brown, Megadet, Gavin Newland, Alex Lapierre, Saul Balcazar, Brian White, Raul Melendez, Eric Eric Harden, Matt Flowers, Kinnams, Joseph Baker, Rodney Coleman, Chris Moore, Caswell, Anti Kinnanen, Chris, Dave Alvarez, Will Hernandez, Chris Galvin, Justin Gonzalez, Mason Cadillac, Ollie Fritz, Zach Allen, Kyle Hagel, Colin Love, Daryl E. Naaman, Ryan R. Kittredge, Toby Ryland, Michael S., David Bostick, Stewie 108, Patrick Montgomery, Simon Dunbar, D.B. Cooper, Fat Houdini, Richter 86, Barrett Boswell, Christopher DeVio, Chris Morton, Johnny Waffles, Roto 24, Jonathan Coach, Sean Mason, Josh Gravelick, Jordan Town, Brian Chan, Organic Produce, Carlos Algaret, Dominic, Mike Menzel, Richard Heber III, Miranda Grubb, Josh Yeager, Gavin, Joey Andrzejczyk, Nathan R., Joe McPartland, Gary Cavallo, Christopher Moore, Jacob Bell, Dennis Usel, Lou and Ray Loper, Jonathan Cortez, Dylan Burns, Betty Ann Moriarty, John Schultz, David Chestnut, Tom Quinn, Spencer F., Anton K., Alan Tremblay, Tyler Bellow, Ryan T. Mandel, Tony Zuniga, Robbie Hensley, Shane Miller, Alex Cabrera, Lennon Brixey, Hugo's Desk, Peter Reynolds, Anthony Vasquez, Adam Kinniston, The Rose Experience and Grizzled Veteran Media, Tyler Goodwin, William O'Carroll, Max Cannon, Phil Crone, Throw Seven, Adam Nix, Josh McKinney, Michael Gates, Alex Gates, Ryan Robertson, Sean Chandler, Lockmore, Geo Corsi, Joey. Egon Holliker, Gerald Pennington, Justin Payne, Justin Wagaman, David Iacolucci, Paul Joyce, Chad Lewis, Enrique Perez, Joshua Smallwood, Spencer Brand, Don Lee, John Cordero, Keith A. Lewis, Ashley Carlson, Marius Garson-Peterson, Ryan Greenwood, Tyler Harris, Matthew Perdue, Patrick Carper, Mad Mock Media, and Jonathan Rice. Today's episode is brought to you by Angie. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs and projects done well. Let me tell you, there's the version of it where you try to do something at home, and then there's a version of it where you have someone help you, you watch them do it the right way, and you go, thank God I didn't try to do that myself. I have fully done things around the home that I think look good, and then a bang in the night, and I wake up to a shelf collapsing, a painting falling off the wall. Like it, I've, I've seen it all go south. I own a home, and I can tell you... I know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, you can Angie that and connect with skilled professionals to get the project done well. Right now, one of my wish lists is I want a bike for my condo in Milwaukee and I would love to rig it up on a pulley in the ceiling because I have one of those like lofted ceilings, but I'm so scared to try that on my own. Angie has 20 years of home experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app. Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.